is 2006 when I graduated from college, pre-credit crisis. Yep. I have an economics degree from Yale. All of my friends are like working in iBanking and I decide to scrape together like 10 grand that I've saved up over like five years and be like, no, I'm gonna go travel with the backpack and a surfboard and like bum around. And people are like, you're crazy. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. We're here on Hawk Talk, and I'm Eric Huberman. I'm here with Colin O'Brady today. Thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. So as we talked about a little bit, would love to dive into, you know, I have a feeling as a three-year-old, you weren't like, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to walk all the way across Antarctica and be the first person to do it. So like, take me way back. Like, how did you get into the adventure side of things that you're in now? Like, tell me about your childhood. Yeah, so I was actually, I'll take you back to the very beginning. I was born in a somewhat untraditional context. My parents were, you know, big hippies, I guess, in the 80s and lived on a, you know, a bit of a hippie commune. So I was born at home, actually, on a futon with my mother Had invited, you know, 20 or 30 of her closest pals over to hang out and celebrate a baby being born. And they were playing Bob Marley Redemption Song on repeat at my birth. And you can kind of picture the hippie Pacific Northwest vibes going on. There. I got to say, what's really funny about that is my last interview was with Brandon Webb, who's a famous name. Yeah. yeah. So Brandon was born with hippie parents too. So you've got two of the toughest people that I've interviewed raised by hippies, which, you know, any sort of critic would say like, that doesn't happen. Like that's not possible. Like, the, you know, hippies are going to raise flower children. It's like, no, they raised the toughest guys in the world, actually. <laughs> yeah. So it was interesting way to be brought into the world, no doubt. And then ultimately, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I didn't, you know, wake up one day when I was five years old and say, you know what, I want to be the first person in history to cross Antarctica solo and unsupported. Definitely not. But what did happen in the formative years was a couple of things. One, my family didn't have a lot of money when I was a kid. And so it wasn't like we were taking big extravagant trips or traveling, but I mostly grew up in Portland, Oregon. And one of the great things about Pacific Northwest is you can drive 15 minutes, 30 minutes in any direction and be, you know, for free, basically at a trailhead, at a lake, at a hike, at a bike ride, et cetera. And so that was really what we did for fun as a family was being outside as a kid. My parents were kind of really on the kind of cutting edge of the natural foods health movement, which was pretty on the fringes at the time and clearly much more mainstream at this point. But it was kind of like hippie co-op, eat healthy food, be outside kind of vibes. And that's what I did a lot as a kid. And then I would say the other really formative thing that happened around kind of sports and high performance when I was a kid was I was watching the 1992 Olympics. So I was seven years old, Barcelona Olympics, obviously just, you know, watching it on TV. And this swimmer, this guy named Pablo Morales, who was a great swimmer of the time, American, wins the 100 meter butterfly. And I was just, for whatever reason, just captivated by the story, probably because NBC did a great job like hyping it or something like that. And I give so much credit to my mother because I'm a seven-year-old kid and I'm like, oh my God, this was amazing. I'm just like excited about this moment. And she looks at me me, instead of saying, you know, the Olympics, they're on the other side of the world, they're this, that's untouchable, whatever, that's cool that you're excited. She says to me, would you want to do that one day? And it's an, a really important moment because it was like, she tangibly put it in my mind, not as this is some untouchable thing that we're watching on television. Like I didn't, Barcelona, Spain, might as well have been on Mars as far as I was concerned. I barely ever left the state of Oregon. I couldn't point out a map. I'm a seven-year-old kid, but she's like, well, what would it take? 
do you want to swim? Do you want to take swim lessons? Would you commit to that every single day? She goes, well, how old are Olympic swimmers? And this is important. She goes, how old are Olympic swimmers? And so we did a little research and we said, well, they're usually between like 19 and 25. And so as a seven-year-old kid, she goes, well, what Olympics would you go to? And she's like, would it be 2008? Would it be 2012? And the kind of point of that is that, no, I didn't become an Olympic swimmer. I did swim all the way through my childhood and I swam collegiately at Yale and then became a professional triathlete. So I did follow this path for a very long time. Didn't quite make the Olympics, but she tangibly said to me in that moment as a seven-year-old kid of made it real, of actually said, what would this look like? And actually took the steps towards like playing out on on a calendar Great. So 2000, I mean, when you're, it's 1992 and you're seven years old, 2008, 2012 is an abstract thought, but she grounded me in that. It's so funny. I have pretty much from my career, an identical story where I was watching behind the music with Sting as like an eight year old. Yeah. They talk about that his manager ripped him. I wanted to be a musician. Like I grew up playing guitar. I was like, I'm going to be a rock star. I was eight. That's, that was my dream. And watching the show and his manager ripped him off for $25 million. Hmm. And I, I didn't even know what that money meant, but I was like, what? but that guy was his partner, like as his manager, how could he do that? And she's like, well, you know, as a musician, he didn't understand business. And I was like, oh, so to be a musician, I need to understand business. And like that like sparked my yeah. interest in business because my mom was watching this with me and was like, no, 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 that's how, if you want to be a musician, you better understand business. And she always used to say like, make sure you have that in the back of your mind. Even if you're going to be a guitarist the rest of your life, understand business. I was like, okay. And that then I took the path more and guitar became a hobby, but same kind of guidance from the parents. It's, it's so valuable to kind of actually ground that. And you realize, and I do in my nonprofit work, I have nonprofit, I work with young people now, is how much at that age, that elementary school age, you know, second, third, fourth grade, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old, how so much are sponges. And because there's no limiting beliefs quite yet, you haven't had those kind of, I can't, I won't, I shouldn't. If someone like a mother or a teacher or a coach actually kind of paints the picture of that in reality for you, it's so interesting how you can actually manifest that and least take a lot of steps towards that and so did you right away sign up for swimming lessons and go for it was it like yeah so like my mom my mom and and she jokes around too is a little bit self-serving for her in that I was a pretty rambunctious kid and she you know obviously I wanted to move my body in in sports and I got excited about swimming watching it on the Olympics but she was also looking for a sport for me that like moved my body as much as possible like she put me in like t-ball or whatever and I'd come home and I'd still be bouncing off the walls and she'd be used to be like baseball you don't move around enough and she's like what sport can you just literally be in constant motion so you're the most tired when you get home so it was a combination of me having this dream but also her being like yeah that's a good one because you're just like moving back and forth up and down the pool and you know as a kid I I swam and played soccer uh, at a high level and then ultimately was recruited division one to swim and so I continued on that swimming path for quite a long time nice and so you swam at Yale and then so going through you know your college experience did you work in college as well or was it really focused on athletics or tell me what yeah so I yeah I I actually did I was kind of an an entrepreneurial spirit I suppose of my own kind which was I was Portland Oregon hippie kid you know end up at this Ivy League school which was very outside of the context or scope for me and I actually went home every single summer and painted houses my buddy and I started a painting company when we were 16. Oh so you did Um, it you didn't join like college works painting or something you just started your own painting company. We we, so we did do like that when we were like 15 we would like a 
a college works or something like that for one yeah. summer. And then we looked at each other and we're like, we can just do this ourselves. Yeah. And from like 16 through the end of college, we did that every single summer. And for me, the driving force behind that actually was I had always dreamed as a kid of traveling and I couldn't really afford to travel when I was a kid. And I said, when I graduate from college, I want to have saved up enough money to travel a little bit, not extravagantly, like on a total shoestring, you know, buy a student ticket, you know, hitchhike, stay in youth hostels, have enough money to drink some beers at night or, you know, whatever but that was it. And so that's what I did right after college, which ultimately leads to another very formative moment of my life. So I, you know, most is 2006 when I graduated from college, pre-credit crisis. You know, I have an economics degree from Yale. All of my friends are like working in iBanking and I decide to scrape together like 10 grand that I've saved up over like five years and be like, no, I'm going to go travel with the backpack and a surfboard and like bum around. And people are like, you're crazy. And that's what I decided to do. It was an amazing experience, like literally just bumming around, living on the cheap up until I found myself on this beach in rural Thailand and in an instant my life really fundamentally changed in that moment which was there were some guys jumping a flaming jump rope I don't know if you've been to Thailand but sort of fire dancing and things like that are somewhat common there I'm 22 years old at the time and I you know no fear at everything I'm like oh that looks like fun and everything kind of went bad for me there this rope it wraps around my legs and let my body completely on fire to my neck and I have to jump in the ocean which extinguishes the flames and ultimately saves my life but not before about 25% of my body is severely burned, predominantly my legs and feet. And I'm in the middle of nowhere in Thailand. Like I have a moped ride down a dirt path to a one room nursing station, you know, no proper medical facilities. I ended up going undergoing eight surgeries and it's mostly my legs and feet that are burned. And after the second or third day, I can't remember exactly which day, but the doctor walks in, he looks at me, he says, Colin, you'll probably never walk again normally. And so after being this lifelong athlete, after being able to move my body the way I always have been, kind of taking that for granted, the physical pain and the trauma is immense, but the emotional trauma of this moment of just like, you made one mistake and in an instant, everything, your full identity, all this is taken away from me was one of the darkest, certainly moments of my life. Yeah. So what, when you had that moment, like explain to me the recovery time, did you have to stay in Thailand for the next month? Like what, what did that look like? Yeah. And so to me, and again, this kind of goes back, obviously there's a through line here of my incredible mother, but you know, she kind of tracks me down after the fourth or fifth day. I mean, I was traveling at the time. It sounds kind of crazy now, but it's just 2007, 2000, just traveling with no cell phone. I wasn't like, you know, I'd go to an internet cafe here and then and send an email or do a Skype call, but it's not like I had the way we would now have like immediate access or let me FaceTime you and show you how bad of a situation I'm in. Yeah. So it took several days to just even communicate with my family back home. And fortunately my mother kind of had the maternal instinct to get on a plane and come find me in the middle of you know an island in the gulf of thailand so actually like there five days later yeah so she's actually shows up and i can only imagine what it's like to be a mother and see your kid in this helpless state and she'll, she admits now that she was you know completely devastated she was crying in the hallway she was pleading with the doctors for good news she, you know she was freaked out obviously yeah. but an incredible thing that she did which actually fundamentally changed my life and everything i've done since is she came into my hospital room every single day with no fear, with just this smile, with this air of positivity, with saying like, hey, Colin, like your life is not over. Like, what do you wanna do when you get out of here? Let's set a goal similar to how she did when I'm seven years old going like, yeah. what year would it be in the Olympics? Just actually like kind of like, let's paint a picture of what you look like whole again, fit again, whatever that looks like for yourself. Like she wasn't pushing me in any given direction, but just being like, this is not the end of the line for you. Cause I was just downward spiraling physically and emotionally. And ultimately I was in this Thai hospital for a few months and I 
couldn't walk. And she was like, you know, close your eyes and visualize some positive outcomes here. And so I initially didn't want to play along, but finally I was like, okay, fine, mom, I'll play along. And I closed my eyes and I opened them. I said, you know, mom, I just pictured myself crossing the finish line of a triathlon. And that's not something I'd ever done before. I obviously was a swimmer, but never biked or run competitively. But I guess, you know, again, maybe it was the NBC Kona Ironman coverage or something deep in my subconscious was like, that to me felt like a fit, able body or the way that I had associated with the world was sort of through physical expression. And so I pictured myself being able-bodied and doing that. And instead of her saying, yeah, I said, set a goal, but maybe something more realistic given the diagnosis, she immediately was like, great, that's your goal. That's what you're going to focus on. And so for the next two months in the Thai hospital, I told the Thai doctor, bring me in these 10 pound weights. I started lifting weights with my arms. I'm bandaged from the waist down, but I'm like, I'm training for a triathlon. The guy's looking at me like this kid is out of his mind. <laughs> I finally flew back to Portland, Oregon, where I'm from. Still hadn't taken a single step. I was carried on and off the plane. I was placed in a wheelchair when I got home. And the big moment was my mother comes to me and that first day we're finally back home out of the hospital. And she says, okay, Colin, we've been talking about this triathlon goal. That is still your goal. But to get there, you need to figure out the next incremental step. And she then grabs a wooden chair from our kitchen table and places it one step in front of my wheelchair. And she says, you need to figure out today just how to get out of your wheelchair and take one step and sit in the chair in front of her. That's your full goal today. And it took me three hours to do it, but I did it that day. The next day, she moved the chair five steps away. The next day, she moved the chair 10 steps away. Each day, I could take a few more steps. And, you know, it's much too long of a story for the time we have. But ultimately, 18 months after being burned in the fire, 18 months after being told I would never walk again normally, I took a job in finance, moved to Chicago, and I signed up for the Chicago Triathlon. And I ended up racing the Chicago Triathlon and completing it, which seemed rather impossible when I was in that hospital. But to my complete and utter surprise, I hadn't just finished the triathlon, but I actually won the entire Chicago triathlon placing first out of like four or 5,000 other participants on the Those other participants know about your recovery. Was that actually publicized? Because that hurts for second place. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was just, I was just like one guy showing up. I mean, the big amateur field of people participating, right? But it's in this moment. And when I tell this story, it's not to say like, and then I just realized I was a superhuman athlete. Like the point is, is that like, I don't think I'm fundamentally different than any other person. In life, no matter who we are, we face setbacks, we face hardships. But my mother taught me in this moment, it's something I've been unable to apply now for the next 10, 12 years and being able to you know, set 10 world records and write a New York Times bestselling book and all sorts of audacious things and goals that I've set and now achieved comes from the essence of you are going to face hard times in life. It will happen. It doesn't matter if you're the richest guy, the poorest guy, the whatever in the world. But we have an opportunity to choose how we react in those moments. And my mother coming into my hospital bed in my darkest moment and saying to me, let's actually shift our mindset towards the positive, shift our mindset towards a productive outcome here has fundamentally shifted the way that outcome was for me and all the other things throughout my life. And so certainly you know, my origin and, and a couple of the two questions you've asked have really come down to these fundamental lessons learned through my mother. And there's certainly been other people along the way, but it really kind of boils down to that self-belief and a realizing things, hard shit is going to happen, but how do you pivot and react to those things? Like we're all going through right now with coronavirus. Like, you know, you just share with me with your own business. Like all of a sudden it's work from home. I usually have these people that I manage in my office and all these things. And it's like, wait, we've actually figured out, it didn't maybe immediately, but how to shift and pivot and evolve and continue to work in a productive manner. And I would also say, like, do you think, I mean, you went through something pretty horrific. Do you think overcoming that adversity when you're challenging yourself to, you know, whether it's Everest or crossing Antarctica, et cetera, like, do you pull from that sometimes where it's like, I had my legs almost burned off, like hiking up this mountain is not going to be a big deal. 
A hundred percent. And I think that it's interesting how we can recalibrate a little bit when we actually can prove when we're, we're going through something hard, but we get through it. That's when you look back with hindsight and go like, oh, wow, like I can persevere through that. What else can I get through? So certainly, you know, I'm pulling a 375 pound sled a thousand miles across Antarctica, something that no one in history had ever done before. People had attempted it. A guy a couple years before me had attempted it and died just a hundred miles from making the crossing. Like it was a very challenging project. I didn't know if it was possible. I actually called my Antarctica crossing the impossible first, which is also the name of my book, because I was like, it may be impossible. But when I step outside of my comfort zone, I am going to grow. So if I make it across Antarctica, amazing. If I don't, I'm going to learn by having taken on something so challenging, so hard that it's going to test me. But a hundred percent, I can go back to that moment in that Thai hospital and the feeling, the burn, the feeling, looking down and not seeing no skin on my legs and go, I have made it through hard things before. I can then for make it through this. I'm not afraid to step into a challenging circumstance because even on the other side of that, not only can I prove to myself that I can do it, but actually getting through hard things have been some of the most fulfilling and rewarding moments of my life. Yep. And so do you think there's a little bit of an addiction to that feeling of like that overcoming adversity? Like, do you think you re- you almost you, like you gravitate towards that now? Like you want to recreate that feeling with these different challenges you've given to yourself? I think yes and no. I mean, I, I think that certainly, you know, I'm not on a quest to continually one up myself. You know, I think that I, you know, the things that I've done, the world records I've set, et cetera, I'm, I'm extraordinarily proud of, and they've been really rewarding, both emotional and physical experience and the ripple effect of them have been able to, you know, I had 600,000 students enrolled in my nonprofit programs with my most recent rowing project. Like I'm proud of the fact that I can now do these things, but have that sort of inspiration and ripple on other people. But it's not like throughout the rest of my life, it's like every year you're going to be like, what's the crazier, harder, even more deadly, dangerous thing I can do? Because I think that that is kind of in somewhat an unhealthy cycle, I would suppose. But I am curious in saying, you know, I always like to ask this question to people, you know, Everest was a part of my first big project, which was a world record on something called the Explorers Grand Slam. So to climb the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents and go to both the North and South Pole, Everest, of course, being the tallest in Asia. And when I was doing that, I started asking young people in my very early phase of my nonprofit, what's your Everest, you know, kind of as a, you know, an obvious metaphor to ask young kids, like, what's your big goal? I'm climbing Mount Everest right now, but like, what is your Everest? And it can be anything. It could be art, music, family, culture, entrepreneurship. It doesn't matter, but it's an obvious metaphor of like, what's a big, you know, thing you want to achieve in your life. And even after climbing Mount Everest, it's not like I just kick my feet up and say like, well, I've done Mount Everest. Like I'm, I have nothing to do. So I continually ask myself the question. I thought it was fun to ask young kids, but I realized it's important to ask myself. It's important to ask business leaders. It's important to ask adults of every different age, because no matter where you are in your life, you generally still have something else that you want to achieve that you've dreamed of, but maybe you're a little bit afraid because it's such a big audacious goal to even speak it out loud. And so my process hasn't been, what's the next hardest, badass thing I can do, but an internal dialogue of like, what's the next thing I want to like put my heart and soul into? And you know, yes, it's been a bunch of series of endurance projects in particularly cold and challenging and dangerous places over the last, you know, four or five years of my life. But in the last year, you know, I always want to write a book. Like I was just past, like always an avid reader my entire life, had the opportunity to write a book. But I set myself the goal, like, I don't want to just write and publish a book. My goal is I want to see if I can write a book that is received well enough that it reaches the New York Times bestsellers list. And for someone who's never written a book before, like that is a Mount Everest. Like that's a, that's a big mountaintop to reach. And I'm proud to say my book came 
out in January and it hit the New York Times bestsellers list in February, again, that is not a physical goal. So I don't know if it's, it's, yeah, it sounds it's like writing it's, more. It's how can I sort of recalibrate, you know, into these bigger goals? Well, it's challenge and achievement. It's not danger, which I think is, as you said, that's the healthier way to look at it. Like challenging yeah. yourself is great. You know, achieving things is great. But putting yourself, like trying to one-up yourself from a danger aspect, I think is frankly a self-fulfilling prophecy at some point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that's exactly. Fair. So I would love to know, though, how did you take that step? So you did the triathlon. At what point did you go from triathlon to I'm going to climb Everest? Like, what was the gap in there? Yeah, so I had raced triathlon for about six or seven years professionally. So after winning that first race, you know, much to the dismay of some of my other peers, I immediately pivoted away from finance yet again. I went and actually quit my job the Monday after winning the triathlon. And to how race- long were you there for? How long were you at that job? Just under a year. So on banking like everyone else you're I was uh, trading commodities so I was uh, okay. like an and trading like crude oil and some fixed income and stuff like that and I like the job just fine but and again this is you know it was an interesting time to be in, in that because that was 2008 2009 but actually commodities trading at the time because the volatility was so high from the credit crisis it was actually a great time to be trading commodities because you had upside trading in both directions it wasn't like equities where you're just like oh the stock market's crashing we're screwed yeah. uh, there was a lot of money to be made in the speculation of that moment but honestly for me even though i didn't grow up with a lot of money it was a, a situation where i was like i was just passionate about pursuing this kind of adventure of triathlon which i knew would allow me to travel and things i got my first sponsor but it really just meant like i had like so sleeping on like floors of like friends houses and like i had a couple of plane tickets to go to races like it was not like it's not like oh i'm a professional athlete like the nba or something like yeah it was more who just was that? Who, who was your Sorry? first who was your first my sponsor? first sponsor actually was a guy who i met in the trading world kind of prolific trader by the name of brian gelber who kind of heard my story i was friends with these kids and he was like this is amazing like if you're looking for us you know basically he him and i talked and he was like look like you know, i'll help you like continue to race or something if you know the fact that you won this race is you know kind of a wild story. So he was my first sponsor and it was, you know, I, you know, maintain a great relationship, ended up being an incredible mentor and a huge influence in my life, you know, not just financially, but you know, I did that for six or seven years. And then in the fall of 2014, I was actually on a mountaintop in Ecuador in the off season of triathlon had a diamond ring in my pocket and I asked my longtime girlfriend Jenna to marry me. I'd actually had met Jenna just before being burned in Thailand. And so we've been together for a number of years and she'd been out on the road with me with triathlon for a number of years. And, you know, thankfully she said yes to my marriage proposal, but more than anything in that moment, you know, young people thinking about our lives together, we were kind of having a brainstorm. We didn't even think about it that way, but kind of like, what do you want? Like, what do you want to do next? Like, what do you want our life to be like? What do you we're passionate about? Kind of this free flowing, very energetic, loving conversation. And, you know, both of us kind of settled on a couple of things. One was, I still did want to push my body in unique and interesting ways, but I felt like I had reached the end of the road for triathlon for me for a number of reasons, but more so than anything, I just felt like I wanted to do something with my physicality that also had an impact impact beyond just myself. So with triathlon, it felt very, and I loved it. I don't take back any of those six or seven years of doing that. But it was like, if I won, my sponsors were happy. If I lost, they were disappointed. And like, maybe it influenced a couple of people in my immediate circle, but it like didn't really matter. And I was like, I wonder if there's a way I'd always dreamed of climbing Mount Everest, but also to do a big project in the world, realizing that sometimes things like that have enough sort of marketing and business and, you know, media narrative that can actually have a much more large large impact within them. And so Jen and I said, we've always wanted to start this nonprofit. Can we kind of combine these two things, endurance sports and high performance with aspirational goal setting, health, wellness around nonprofit initiatives. Now you can appreciate this being a successful founder 
you know, after this, you know, riding high on kind of our, not honeymoon, but I guess our engagement honeymoon, like, let's start this thing and let's, you know, set this world record. It's going to be great, whatever. Like we get back to our house and we always write our goals on this whiteboard. And actually the very last words of my entire book are whiteboard to reality. And it's like, we write, set a world record in next floor's grand slam, start a nonprofit, have all this impact. And we look at each other in our one bedroom apartment going like, we have no money. We have no funding. We have no background in this. We don't have a network. I have 200 Instagram followers. Like, how the hell are we going to pull this thing off? But that is the moment that I believe, and you know this, where you have, again, a decision. Your own self-doubt come in there. You're like, I can't do this. This isn't for me. Yeah, that was a fun thing to like dream about, but like, let's get real. You need a real job. You need a this, that, the other thing. Alternatively, Jen and I pulled open our laptops and go, we have nothing, but we have the internet. Google, like, what's the difference between marketing and PR? Google, how do you start a 501c3 nonprofit? Who are like four random people that I might know that I can like say, can I have a coffee and like ask you a couple questions? And I won't get into the whole story, but basically the next 18 months, when you can appreciate this being a founder, was us like taking random people to coffee, following up on random leads, asking people to help sponsor or fund or learn about this bureaucratic process of starting a nonprofit. And mostly what we heard was no, 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 no. That's a bad idea. Sorry, kid, whatever. But you get enough no's that you learn your process, you refine it. And ultimately, we got, you know, just a couple cracks in the armor of yes or a maybe or whatever. But the point is we kept pursuing our passion and taking from that whiteboard to reality and those actual incremental steps. to get. There. When I also, something consistent with a lot of high achievers, frankly, is the why not me attitude. Like, why shouldn't I be the one to do this? Like right. someone else has done it. Why can't I be the one? Like, they're no smarter than me. I'll figure it out. And as you, like you open Google versus, as you said, the self-doubt instead of self-doubt, isn't, it isn't necessarily a cockiness of like, I'm the best. It's more just like, well, why can't I do this? Like, what's stopping me? Like, let's just go for it. What's the worst that's going to happen? So 100%. Yeah, no. And I agree. Yeah. It's like that. It's totally that. That's that. Why not me? Or just, and then that also maybe, you know, a little bit, I don't know, like self-flagellating, but like people just say no, and you're not right. And like every day you're like, no, I'm going to try again. Like, I'm just going to like keep doing it. Like we have the benefit of enough great stories of like, everybody told me I couldn't do it. And I could, and you always, everybody wants to be that guy or girl that's like, everyone told me no. And now here we are. Like I proved them all wrong. Like there's almost that little bit of chip on your shoulder you get from hearing now and hearing it's a bad idea. You're like, you know, I guess you just don't see what I see. Like, again, like if you have enough confidence, you kind of still like, if there's, you know, valid, like constructive criticism, that's easy to take. But if For someone sure. just, says, oh no, don't do that. It's like, well, why? Like, let's talk about this. Cause it's really, you know, there's someone's always got to start something, you know, there's always some, everything's new once kind of thing. And, and I think that that goes back to the essence of where we began this conversation, that origin story is effectively in more concise terms, the way you put it, what my mom said to me when I was watching the Olympics and a guy won a gold medal is she looked at a seven-year-old kid and said, well, why not you? Yeah. 12, 15 years from now, you know? Yeah. And so of course that seeped into, so when I tried other things in my life, although I didn't win an Olympic gold medal in swimming, even though I pursued that path for a long time, yeah. that's still of like, well, why not me with this next thing? Or why not me with this next thing? And actually imagining that rather than watching that go, well, other people know how to climb mountains better than me, or this guy's richer and can just take out of his trust fund and write this check to fly around the world, or, you know, whatever. But it's like, mm, but I think that there's an interesting lesson in that too, because, and I had a similar experience. I went to similar timing. I went into real estate in 2008, a week before Lehman Brothers collapsed and the rest of the <laughs> Great. So 
I had goals I had set for myself on the business side. Cause again, I grew up more business oriented where it was like, I'm going to own my first income property by 25 years old. And obviously that got shaken up a little bit. Like I wasn't going to get outside help and I did not end up buying an income property at 25 years old. And I had very little money at that point. And it, in some ways, like when I hit my 25th birthday, it felt like a failure because I'd set mm -hmm. this goal. I hadn't hit it somewhere like you with the Olympic gold medal, but I think it also taught like you can't really predict that stuff. You know, things are going to happen that set your goals up differently. And like, I think having that audacious goal that drove you to that point and then accepting the fact that sometimes the outcome isn't there, but the journey and the path will lead you to something else cool becomes 100%. a really big part of it. Well, I think that that is huge. And I, I'm going to double down on that for a second, because even though I don't know the totality of your story, it's so clear that the 25 year old kid that didn't get the income property, but set the goal and worked your ass off towards it for those, you know, several years as the world is falling apart and the housing market is collapsing. You learn so many fundamental lessons through that process, even the failure to reach the goal that obviously you took with you towards that. And that's when I kind of was saying before, like, I didn't know, I wanted to think I could be the first person to cross Antarctica solo and unsupported. And I did accomplish that. But I also knew because there were other things I set out to do, like becoming the Olympic gold metal swimmer that I didn't quite get to, but the athletic process, the mindset, what I learned from that led me to professional triathlon that led me to expeditions. You know, they were all stacking on each other. And even if I didn't achieve, which I, you know, fortunately did achieve the Antarctica crossing, had I not, it's still a worthy pursuit because attempting to do something that is so far outside of the comfort zone, that is so challenging success or failure. It really is success or success. Like, yep. yes, the external success of achieving the goal or the success of putting your whole heart and soul into something and all of the unknown things that you're going to learn along that way that you're going to build into your next thing, assuming you're not so defeated as it sounds like you weren't either. Right. Um, and I imagine, you know, I know you've maybe figured out how to turn things into probably much more lucrative, you know, lifestyle and business than you even imagine as a 25 year old kid owning one income property. It's like, yep. You learn that even though you didn't get that one thing, you, you gain, you know, a thousand more lessons than value in the process. I agree. And I think that having that lesson that, that it's okay, like, you know, the lesson at 25 was so important because it was important to have a goal, but it was okay to have that shift, have it change, not quite achieve it. But, you know, the journey, as you just said, everything you pick up along the way, I think it, it's a good, another good lesson that helps you keep going. Because frankly, if you have a fear of not achieving those goals, you're going to set lower goals. And that, yeah. that's what you have to be careful of too. So talk to me about the transition. So you go and hike every, the tallest mountain on every continent. You go to the North and South Pole. And tell me about that. Let's start with the nonprofit. What was the nonprofit focused on? So we started a nonprofit in 2015. It's called Beyond 7-2, still going to this day. It's kind of gone through a couple of iterations as we've built and grown the scope of it. But it really, you know, still has the same essence as it began with, which was really to inspire young people. One, I fundamentally believe when young people are healthier, you know, we have a, you know, a crisis in this country and really in the Western world of childhood obesity, you know, kids stuck behind screens, not moving their bodies, et cetera. And there's a lot of science that proves that when people are physically healthier, mentally healthier, that they are able to achieve and be, you know, just healthier lifestyles across the board. So really wanted to focus on that kind of health and wellness and inspiring young people to get outside, move their bodies and live active and healthy lives. And that has evolved, you know, over the last five years, really as digital and online learning, you know, even now to this day, you know, even bigger and bigger. Um, I didn't anticipate what's happening in the world right now, but able to basically take these expeditions while I'm doing them in real time. And we've, you know, have this huge network of teachers and educators across the world who are saying, our kids are dying for things that isn't just a dusty textbook to read about this guy that did this thing a hundred years ago. If it's like, I'm rowing a boat across Drake Passage and there's 600,000 students that are like in STEM curriculum, they're already going to learn 
the teachers are needing to teach them about climate change and weather and oceans and friction and engineering around, you know, boats or, you know, how that works. But when something's real and live and they can read about in the news or follow it on Instagram or social media, and I'm sending videos back and forth between them while I'm doing it, all of a sudden their minds are opened up and the teachers love it because while their minds are open up to this real live kind of adventure that's happening, intersperses with, hey, let's actually write a curriculum around this thing to teach these principles, these STEM curriculums, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math. So it's been fun to kind of collaborate with my projects and these incredible educators to actually build online and digital curriculums that are interlinked, which of course has the still subset value of saying like, hey, kid, why not you? This person's out there chasing their dreams and your dream might not be to freeze your butt off and row a boat across a frozen ocean, but like, what do you want to achieve in your life? And it's been amazing. I mean, kids going, you know, my Mount Everest to be the first person in my family to graduate from college or, you know, any different ones, these things we've heard. And so it's been fun to develop and build that and continue to grow that scope. Well, it's, I mean, testament to the educators too, like one of the age old problems with education is the relevancy. As you said, learning about someone 100 years ago in history sometimes can gain attention, but learning math when it's out of context, even just learning multiplication and going like, why am I going to use this? Now, obviously, as you get older, you understand multiplication everybody uses all the time. But if you can tie it to something real and exciting, like, you know, I funny enough took aeronautics in college, which I was interested in because I grew up around airplanes. And now I'm actually getting my pilot's license. And it's like, oh, yeah, like, I know this stuff, but now it's relevant. Now it has practice. Same thing with business school. Like, I'd sit in these classes learning about, I got a D in accounting. And I ran <laughs> Hawk Media for the first four years. The context was so poor that I, I, I could not understand, like, debits versus credits. And, like, it's simple stuff I understand very easily now, but it was just never relatable. They didn't right. you're, you're grounded into something that's happening. Exactly. And so it's yeah. like, you know, where these kids got these engineering principles and they need to learn the math and science. But all of a sudden, it's like, wait, we're watching this guy row a boat across the ocean. Let's build a scale model of said boat they're like excited about that and all of a sudden they're like i don't understand the geometry and the friction of the bottom of the boat and oh how's weather going to impact that and all this kind of stuff and it's alive in their brain in a real life context and so it's been fun to collaborate with you know educators and students around kind of these principles it's been really fun that is awesome so going back to the other question so after finishing the seven peaks and everything like what did that like really the new bug come where it's like now i want to really get out and be more adventurous and start these expeditions like what happened from there yeah i think so and i think it comes from what i mentioned slightly before of asking myself a real question which is what's my next everest yes i had set this massive goal and i achieved it and i set two world records but it was like i'm not going to just like you know, I'm asking these students, what's your Everest? I'm starting to, you know, I'm starting to be asked to speak at, you know, to C-suite executives and, you know, big business conferences and things like that. And I'm like, well, I'm telling, I'm like giving advice, but I'm like, I'm 32 years old as well. I got a lot of life left to live. Like what else do I fundamentally want to do and achieve in my life? And so I think it was from that as well as this kind of the, this deeper question for me, which is, you know, what, yes, I've achieved, I guess, some things that people might think, oh, that's a really difficult thing to do or whatever. But for myself and the Antarctica crossing, which was kind of the next really big thing I dove into was yes, a physical expression, but I've also been really, really curious in my own life of diving into the mind in a really fundamental way. I've done a number of series of 10-day silent meditation retreats in my life, actually. No reading, no writing, no eye contact. And I thought, wow, what more, you know, sounds crazy, but interesting way to dive into the mind, which is in this extreme place that I believe that I can survive because I've proven I've learned those skills, how to, you know, survive when it's minus 30 degrees out, but also to be alone in a place that is so harsh and so desolate and it's 24 hours of daylight and there's endless white on the horizon. What is that going to do inside of my mind? And 
what is what am I going to learn from going so deep within my own self? And so the curiosity has always kind of been the thing that has spawned me on. And the curiosity is all externally, it looks like what's the next harder physical outdoor adventure that you can take on. For me, that journey was more than anything, a deep journey into the, the mind, the body and the soul of going really deep in that. And in, in my book, you know, I don't think in it, if you read my book, The Impossible First, you know, the adventure seeker in you isn't going to be disappointed. There's plenty of edge of your seat storytelling. It's cold, it's hard, it's this, it's that, but it's also a journey into my own mind. And the last chapter of the book, I won't give it away too much, but the last chapter of my book is actually called Infinite Love because as my body deteriorated, I lost like 30 some pounds. So I couldn't carry enough food. My ribs are sticking out. My hips are sticking out. I've got frostbite forming on my nose and my cheeks. Like physically, I'm in a really bad place. I'm on my last couple of days of food. Like the stakes are real. Like I said, someone passed away attempting the same project. But on the other side of all that quote unquote suffering, I suppose, externally, I found a place inside my body that was full of flow, of peace, of calm, and what I call this sort of resonant energy of infinite love. So much so, it sounds weird, but I actually all alone on the ice, maybe I was going to look crazy, would outreach my arms and actually say infinite love, infinite love, infinite love, and be kind of filled up with this energetic positivity of this, this really peak experience of being tapped into, you know, I'm not a particularly religious person, but you could call it God, you could call it the universe, you could call it energy, you could, you know, whatever that word is for you and how you associate that. But for me, this kind of really resonant positive energy that I do believe flows through all of us and tapping into that in such an extreme place was fascinating to me and certainly, you know, profoundly meaningful and a really huge growth opportunity. So for me, I mean, the transition, I'm not, it's, it's hard to exactly pinpoint, you know, what strikes my fancy, what's, you know, going to itch my scratch of curiosity, but it was that for me, it was the journey into the mind. And one of the things that I love to say as an athlete, but I think it applies to any of us is people sometimes look at what I've done physically and they say, how'd you pull that sled? You know, what did you train? How much weights were you lifting in the gym? Whatever. And obviously I know enough as an athlete, you know, high performing world-class athlete to tell you all the physiology things and the science of that. But I love to say, but the most important muscle that any of us has is the six inches between our ears. Yep. And actually understanding that is it's if it's business, if it's art, if it's music, if it, whatever it is, having a strong mind, but that doesn't, that's not just an innate trait. I say to you, like, hey man, like you want to get bigger biceps? Like it's obvious we all go, cool. So I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to like lift more weights and my arms are going to get bigger. But it's funny how disconnected we are from the idea that our mind, our brain is a muscle. Just like the biceps need to be flexed, we actually need to flex and develop our brain. Just like you said, like accounting sitting in a classroom wasn't the right way to flex and develop. If you start a company and you actually have to run the books and it actually matters, are you understanding that? Oh, all of a sudden you're flexing and developing this new muscle and you actually learn this skill. And so for me as an athlete, for whatever it is, it's finding the ways to actually flex and develop that muscle because that muscle, I will say it again, is the most important muscle any of us has, the six inches between our ears, leading towards high performance, leading towards achievement, leading towards peace and calm and fulfillment, et cetera. But it actually takes intentional practice and intentionally putting your mind in growth opportunities to flex and develop. Yep. No, couldn't agree more. I mean, I think about it all the time. You said it, the brain's a muscle. And I know it's sometimes a cliche, but I think people glaze over that. And it's so true. Like you talked about, you kind of went through it really quick, but 10 day silent meditation retreats where you literally didn't read anything, didn't talk to anyone, didn't make eye contact. Like that had to prep you in a significant way for being, how many days did it take you to cross Antarctica? 54 days. And exactly what we were talking about before is the stacking of the lessons. 
I did my first silent meditation retreat in 2010 before I even knew that crossing of Antarctica was a thing. It wasn't something I dreamed about. I didn't know the history. I knew the history of like Shackleton a hundred years ago, but I didn't know like sort of contemporary things happening in the polar environment. I did it as I was a triathlete trying to like get a little more control over my mind and, you know, peace and stillness there. But of course that lesson, the ability to take the leap of faith, I'd never meditated a minute in my life when I dive into this 10 day silent meditation retreat. Cause I was like, well, I'm going to learn something from this. It might make me crazy, but whatever. And then I went back and repeated that numerous times those 10 days. So when then I did dream up this thing about solitude, people's first things were like, how could you be alone for so long for two months? It's like, well, actually, unbeknownst to myself, I've actually been training myself and I actually understand what it feels like to be alone, fully isolated, alone in my thoughts. And I joke around when you're alone for that long, it's like throwing a party and both all your angels and all your demons are invited, you know, and it can be a dark and scary place. And trust me, I've had some scary moments deep in that, you know, whether that's on a meditation pillow, whether that's in the middle of Antarctica alone in my head, but I also gained strength from saying, oh, I kind of know what that feels like. I don't know what it feels like to have that and minus 30 degrees, you know, on my face, but I know what it's like to be on the summit of Everest and I, that cold. And I know what it's like to be alone on a meditation pillow. Can I combine those two things as I cross Antarctica? And certainly without both of those lesson learns and then combining those skill sets, I never would have been able to complete or even attempt that crossing. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. And so would you say Antarctica is to this point, the hardest thing you achieved is crossing Antarctica or was it the rowing or what, what is the hardest thing you've done at this point? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to decouple everything and like rank, you know, I have 10 world records and various different projects, whatever, but I would say that the Antarctica crossing is, I would say, at least at this point in my life, I don't, I don't think when I die, it'll be like the only thing, you know, the only hardest thing I've ever done, but you know, I'm 35 years old and at this point, it's kind of the, you know, crowning, I'd say achievement, but also more than anything, forget, you know, achievement aside, external claim, you know, name in the New York Times or on TV, whatever, like put all that to that, I don't care, but actually just say like, that was a thing that took all of the different component parts of my life up to that moment to then say, can I take all of the lessons I've learned in all these various verticals and combine them into one moment of high performance? And ultimately what I just shared about that infinite love moment, that is the thing that has, you know, I guess transcended all of this into the next chapter of my life. So from that standpoint, yes, it's kind of like a magnum opus or a combination of all the things in my life that, you know, played out in this moment, but was definitely a product of years and years and years of different things to get there. And I love that. Like when I, I think there's a lot to be said when people have all these disparate things that don't relate at the time, meaning your, you know, silent retreats, but your triathlons. And again, your what happened to your legs, all these random things that all culminate to something that all plays a part in this as you said, magnum opus, like that's a really exciting thing, especially in your mid thirties to be able to like actually achieve. Yeah. And again, as you said, you've got plenty of time left for the next thing, but up to this point, very few people get to have that where they've spent years and years doing different things that all come together to create something. It's an amazing feeling. So two more questions for you. First is what's next? Do you have something you're, you know, obviously you got the book, you accomplished that. What's the next challenge you're working on? What do you think is coming down the pike for you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting moment, I think, for all of us as we pivot and evolve and shift. You know, as I said, whiteboard to reality has always been my methodology. And I look across the room here in my home office, I've got a big whiteboard full of ideas, but also trying to overlay that against, you know, some of these, you know, things that are outside of my control, which is, is the U.S. passport allow me to travel to countries? Certainly not right now. It doesn't. And a lot of things that I've dreamed up, you know, include some international travel or things like that. So there's a little bit of a reassessment. I, I definitely, it's not a reassessment. I don't look at these moments and say like, 
oh my God, I had all these things written down and I can't do them. What was me? It's actually just saying like, okay, just like when the weather shifted in Antarctica or I had to pivot or shift or evolve or ask a different person for help or whatever. It's just another one of those moments of realizing we can control the things we can control. And there's certainly a huge thing affecting all of us that is far outside of our other's control. So what's the new reality that I'm you know, operating from and how can I still pursue my passions and my goals within this new context? And so I'm definitely in a moment of evaluation of that. And, and, and to me, it's, again, I know it's a really devastating and challenging time and I'm not going to pretend like I don't have my own challenges. There's been a lot of impact. You know, I spent a lot of my time and a lot of my money was coming from speaking in front of large audiences of people at conferences. Like turns out that's not really a thing anymore, at least not for a while. But rather than sitting and saying, what was me? It's like, you know, how can I shift and evolve into that? One thing that I am very clear on is, and I don't say this just about myself. I'm like, oh, you know, read my book because it was popular in the New York Times bestselling, whatever, none of that. It's to say like, I believe when we, all of us, the collective we of everyone on this planet shares our stories with one another via a podcast, a format like this, via a book, via going on a walk outside your house and social distancing, talking to your neighbor across the street and talking about what happened or being vulnerable in your own life. When we share our stories with one another, we have the ability to uplift and have this ripple effect of positivity between each other. And so I certainly want to continue to foster that in my own life, with my nonprofit, with my prof- you know career and professional goals, and in my own personal life, as well as just, you know, it's a long meandering answer to say, like, I don't exactly know what's next. I have a ton of ideas, but I'm also trying to overlay and adapt that to this new world we're being in. My, my wife and I were supposed to climb Everest in April and May. She had set herself the goal this time of climbing Everest. So it's kind of a role reversal. Can I support her in this goal this time? And we had flights to climb from the Chinese side in April, May of this past year. And so flights to China on April 9th, 2020, of course, didn't happen. And so it's a little bit like we all are of shifting. We have these goals. We work towards these goals, whether that is, you know, business or whether you're a teacher that thought you're going back to school on September 1st and realize that's not happening. All of us are evolving in this moment and I'm no different. I think there, there's so much wisdom in there that we could unpack. But I think the biggest thing you said there is, you know, you didn't look at this as woe is me. I mean, just to be clear, as much as success as you've had and, you know, things that have happened positive for you, I have a lot of other friends that make the core of their income through speaking, like your income, and I don't mean to pry on it, but got devastated through this. And I'm assuming, yeah, absolutely. and yeah. you're here being optimistic and looking for other opportunities. And like that mindset because a lot of people can say it's easy for you to say, it's easy for you to say. And it's like, no, it's not easy for anyone to say. But if you can get into that mindset of like, what is the opportunity in a crisis, whether you're an entrepreneur or anyone in life, you're just going to enjoy yourself a lot more. And you're going to come out on top because in this situation, which is horrible in a lot of ways, there is opportunity if someone's willing to look at it, you know, whether, you know, and it's in business and going online and digital in your situation, you know, you may have more time to be on, you know, spend with your wife to be on the ground. Like there's things that come out of this that are positive. And if you're able to look at the glass, even if it's, let's say a quarter full instead of half, yeah. <laughs> you're still looking at it a quarter full, it, it just changes your mindset. And then again, opportunity comes out of every crisis. You know, I think it was Warren Buffett that said, don't waste a good crisis. Like yeah. it's not to be cold about the fact that people are suffering, but at the same time, if you're not individually actually dying from coronavirus, there's going to be an opportunity there for you. For sure. A little hard to say, but all right. So final question, and I think you do this a lot, but I'd love to like hone it in. What is like one piece of advice you have for people that are also looking to pursue their dreams, whatever that may be? What, you know, as you've looked back on your journey, what's one thing that you would want people to take away from this? Yeah, one thing. Let's see. I think I've kind of already said it, but I'm going to distill it into something, you know, kind of concise. 
which is to say, I do think it's very valuable to ask yourself what that big goal is. And we'll, we'll stick with the metaphor with asking yourself that question, you know, what, what is your Mount Everest? But then asking yourself, what are the incremental steps? What is the moment of sitting in the wheelchair and saying, you want to race a triathlon? Okay, there's about uh, literally a million steps between your wheelchair and that finish line. But what is that chair, that wooden chair in front of you saying, take your first step towards that. I actually have it here on my desk. I'll put it up uh, here. This is actually a small rock that I keep with my desk or my pocket. And it's actually from the summit of Mount Everest. And this rock to me is a small reminder that even Mount Everest can be broken down to its smallest incremental parts. Like the tallest mountain in the world, the tallest, biggest, oop, dropped it. There it is. Um, the tallest, biggest goal in the world is still the biggest mountain is a bunch of small rocks stacked on top of each other, many steps leading to the summit. So to distill that would say, set that massive goal, write it down, put it on your whiteboard if that's your process or tell your friend, be accountable to it. But then don't be overwhelmed by saying in 10 years, I want to have this massive company. This is like today, literally today, Google something, write one email, take that one step, whatever that is. Tomorrow, do the second. The next day, do the third step. That's what it is. Any person that I know in high performance, sports, business, I mean, literally any single avenue, it is, cliche as it sounds, has broken down into having that vision, that North Star, that massive thing that you want to achieve, but then actually doing the work, i.e. taking those incremental steps to achieving the summit of your dreams. Couldn't agree more. Well, Colin, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for being on Hawk Talk. It really Yeah, my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.